at this point, we're in a pretty dire short-term energy situation. In fact, I would say that since last October, we've been in a global energy crisis. Welcome to Environmental Insights, a podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens, a professor here at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. You know, it would be much too easy if there were a New York Times crossword puzzle clue that asked for 12 letters for world-renowned global energy expert, because immediately everyone would have the obvious answer, which would be Daniel Jurgen. And so today we're very fortunate to have with us Dan Jurgen, author, historian, educator, energy analyst, and founder of Cambridge Energy Research Associates, or CIRA, which was acquired by IHS Market in 2004 and which itself recently merged with S&P Global, where Dan Jurgen is now vice chair. Now, to many audiences, Dan is best known for his books, including The Prize, The Epic Quest for Oil, Money, and Power, published in 1991 and recipient of the Pulitzer Prize. Then The Quest, Energy Security and the Remaking of the Modern World, published in 2011. And most recently, The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations, published in 2020. But to tell the truth, the book that first brought this remarkably productive gentleman to my attention was Energy Future, published in 1979 and co-authored with the late Professor Robert Stobaugh of Harvard Business School. So we have a lot to talk about. Welcome, Dan. Uh, thank you, Rob, and very glad to be with you. So before we talk about your current thinking on energy, environment, climate change policy, and of course, the geopolitics of energy. Let's go back to how you came to be where you are and where you've been. And when I say go back, I do mean go way back. Where, where did you grow up? I grew up in Los Angeles. And so that meant primary school and high school? Primary school, high school, exactly. And then you went off to college at Yale? Exactly. And what did you study there? What was your major? Well, I did uh, English and history is what I mainly did. Uh, mm -hmm. My official major was uh, English, but it was a, mix, a, a total mixture of the two. Now, w you graduated from Yale. Did you immediately go off to Cambridge University in the United Kingdom? Yes, I, I had a, a Marshall Scholarship, which mm -hmm. took me to Trinity College, Cambridge, which is where I did a, what they called a second BA, which if you paid a few pounds, became an MA, which mm -hmm. is a very easy way to get an MA. Mm -hmm. And then uh, they uh, said, why don't you stay and do your PhD here? So uh, it was a very beautiful place. And I said, yes, thank you. And was your PhD in history? Well, it was international relations. Or international relations. Yeah, it was, a, it, was a, uh, it was basically the origins of the Cold War. And that became uh, oh, my, yeah. fir my first book, Shattered right. Peace. Right. And who were you, who was your key advisor at Cambridge? Uh, there was a very wise man named F.H. Hinsley, mm -hmm. who, among other things, was the um, great expert on British intelligence at, during the Second World War, of which he had been part. And he was a very uh, judicious 
advisor, but basically at Cambridge, unlike an American PhD, one of the professors said to me, well, you know, just go off and write a book and come back. Right. And so <laughs> I went off and wrote a book and came back. <laughs> and they said, here's your PhD. <laughs> so you graduate, you receive the PhD from Cambridge, you convert your dissertation into a book. Were your first job out of graduate school back in the other Cambridge, perhaps? Yes. What happened then is I, I actually wrote a lot of my book in Cambridge, Mass., uh-huh. where I had an affiliation with Harvard, which the most important aspect of which was a library card. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, I became a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for International Affairs. And I was going to work on a contemporary sort of political economy subject. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was at a two-year postdoc, and I had the great virtue that, um, or deficit that no one was supervising me mm-hmm. so that I could kind of do what I want, wanted and I just became obsessed with energy and started to just uh, uh, kind of like an autodidact teaching myself. I became involved with the Harvard uh, International Energy Seminar, and that led to me getting a job as a lecturer at the Harvard Business School, which was, uh, you know, not kind of not what I had expected. Mm-hmm. Now, if I have this right, in addition to being a lecturer at Harvard Business School, you also taught or at least had an appointment of some sort at my institution absolutely the Kennedy I, School. yes absolutely so it was kind of a, a dual appointment and then I moved from the business school over to the Kennedy School and was at the uh, energy and environmental center at oh, the Kennedy right. School yes. and uh, uh, I love teaching at the uh, Kennedy School and particularly the kind of the mid-career students so that was a great experience and a very formative experience so was that when Bill Hogan was directing that center? Exactly. Okay, yeah. So you left the Kennedy School um, in what year was that approximately? Like 82? Yeah, sort of. Well, I think I continued teaching for another year or two, but I kind of faded out from there because I see. we had done this book at the Harvard Business School called Energy Future that you mentioned. Yes. And that just... Um, you know, I was totally obsessed with the subject mm-hmm. and wanted to find a way to kind of keep, what I really want to do was find a way to keep doing research like that and set up a research company, which you, you mentioned called, of all things, Cambridge Energy Research Associates. Right. And that was, uh, that was, uh, and I actually started that, it was kind of actually looking back on it a little insane, started that the same year I started writing the prize, which was like, what was I, th- what was I thinking? Very impressive. Now tell me something. So if you graduated in, uh, or you left, I mean, the Kennedy School are phased down at HBS and HKS around 82. So I just missed you because I came to Harvard to do my PhD over in the economics department in 1983. And then I joined the faculty of the Kennedy School in 1988. Yes. By which time you were very firmly planted in in CIRA. Exactly. Yes. So uh, now, basically, uh, basically, sort of, for several years across street from the Kennedy School, on top of a, on top of a, as I recall, a Spanish restaurant, which we uh, uh, got to know the aromas of its cooking and particularly the garlic very well. Yeah, I can picture actually that location. Um, yeah. It's no longer a Spanish restaurant, but I remember the place. Yeah. So I've I've always wondered, um, Cambridge Energy Research Associates. You take a degree at Cambridge University. You do your energy work starting in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Which Cambridge 
did you name it after? Definitely Cambridge, Massachusetts. Okay. Definitely oh, Cambridge, Massachusetts. Okay. So I, I read somewhere that you have written all of your books in longhand. Now, first of all, is that true? It is true. It is true. Now, our younger listeners may not even know what the, what the phrase longhand means, but can you tell us yeah, what, what why do you, call, do you do it? Well, first, isn't it, what do they call it, script now? What, yeah. Uh, yeah. Script. Uh, the reason I do it, I mean, I guess it's because I, I mean, when I, it started off basically in seventh grade when mm-hmm. I learned, and I don't know if people learn this anymore, how to outline. And uh, the way I write is I kind of create an outline. It's a mm-hmm. combination between an outline and a sketch. Mm-hmm. And I find uh, the notion, at least for me physically, there are a couple of things. For me physically, you don't have to sit at a keyboard. You can be in a more relaxed posture with a pad and mm-hmm. sort of stretched out. And the second reason I do it, when I was growing up, my mother was an artist and I would watch her sketch as she was figuring out a painting. And I feel that it's like sketching before doing the painting, which are mm-hmm. typing it. Uh, and the third thing is I think that I feel that it it makes it tighter and the, it, and the flow tighter, that there's more control hmm. over the prose. But I have to tell you, not surprisingly, that my handwriting has deteriorated over the years. And therefore, once I've done that, once I've sketched it and gotten into things and know where they flow and how they fit together, I then need to get to the keyboard pretty quickly and type it while I can still read it. Oh, I see. Oh, so you, you type it in after you've written it in, in longhand in yes. script. Yes. So I don't, oh. it's not like I have a 500 uh, pages of longhand, but it's right. rather two or three pages. I and, see. And then I always focus on writing is not, I'm not trying to, I always remember, you're not trying to write a book. You're not trying to write a chapter. You're just trying to write some paragraphs and get hmm. them to s- sort of fit together so one flows into the other. The, and the other thing I do after I write is I read it aloud to just say, does this flow? Re- you, out loud you read it? Yes. That's interesting. So, you know, a my late colleague, uh, Professor Marty Weitzman from the Economics Department at Harvard, one of the great environmental economics theorists uh, of the last century or this one, um, he always said that the two things he needed to do his research and write a paper was a legal pad and a number two pencil. And that was it. I find that I do better. I completely agree with that, except I need an eight and a half, eleven pad rather than a legal pad. <laughs> and I use these pens called precise five pens, V5s. Mm-hmm. Once I was interviewed, some a, a magazine for people who collect pens, uh, hmm. very fancy pens, heard that I wrote by longhand, so they interviewed me, and they were very disappointed to realize that I <laughs> I didn't write with a very fancy fountain pen. I wrote with a box of uh, 12 pens next to me, which I go through pretty quickly because I lose, lose them. So I, I agree with your, your late colleague. <laughs> I, I suspect that you've gotten fighting quite a few gifts, however, of very fancy fountain pens. I have gotten some, yeah. but I don't know what to do with them because it, it, it's, it's a different motion with a fountain right. pen. Right. Now, before we turn to current developments in energy markets and policy, I want to ask you for a moment to reflect on your entire body of, of research and writing. And I hope it's not an unfair question like the uh, the cliche about asking you to choose your favorite child, but what's the one publication, or for that matter, the one accomplishment that you're most proud of? You, you know, that is a really tough question. 
Mm-hmm. Obviously, I, when I look back at the at the prize, I look at it, and my main question is, how did I do this, and where did I get the confidence to do this, and what did I think I was doing? Mm-hmm. Because you know, there's enough distance on it now. I read it and say, wow, that's you know, that's pretty good. How did I know to do that? Uh, but that was a project that was supposed to take two years, according to the contract, and took seven years. So, oh gosh, uh, uh, you know, the publisher was beginning to despair of me, uh, but. Uh, what strikes me, and I didn't think about it this way, somebody described the prize, the quest, and now the new map as a trilogy about mm-hmm. energy, security, and society. And I guess, in a way, I think of them as as, as one body of work, I suppose. Mm-hmm. But I think of the three, the, the prize is a great adventure story. I mean, people write me and literally say it's, the, you know, my favorite book, the best book I've read. And even though, you know, it's a bit on the long side, I have to admit. Now, it's striking speaking about these three books culminating in the new map, which indeed I think that it is sensible to think of them as as a trilogy. I can picture the boxed set for uh, the Christmas holidays (laughs) being on offer. That's a good idea. (laughs) There you go. Okay. Um, It's striking to me that in the new map, which was published in 2020, when you write about Russia and Ukraine, you do it in ways and with some text that's almost prophetic of the current pr- crisis. Can can you, first of all, do you agree with that observation? And if so, how do, how were you able to do that? Well, yeah, and I, I should say I also revised the book in 2021, but revised mainly means adding an epilogue. Uh, I'm amazed. I mean, I looked at it and realized at the bottom of page 78, I say that Ukraine is the issue that's going to blow up between Russia and the West. Right. And, uh, you know, I remember some reviewers said, oh, well, why is he spending so much time on this geopolitical stuff? You know, what, why is it important? And I, you know, I guess what, when you write a book like this, you're trying to say what's coming down the road. And you could see, I could see that, that Putin did not accept the outcome of the end of the Cold War. And he said Ukraine's not a country. Mm-hmm. And it just, it tied together geopolitics and energy in a very vivid way. And it just seemed to me that, that a collision was going to come. I wouldn't have imagined a war that would go on more than 100 days specifically, but I just could see that this was going to happen. And so it was to, what I tried to do, and just say, you know, use the word prophetic, but what is the context? How did this thing that has just changed the world, and it has, it has changed the world, how did this, how was, how did this come about? And I guess I could just see that it was going to, you know, I was saying, well, where are the next conflict's going to be? And it was one of two that I really pointed to. So is it, is it reasonable to assume um, that you're already thinking about or perhaps have even started working on what will be your next book? No, I, I think uh, what's happened is I feel right now that I'm living the new map, mm-hmm. that it's what's happening in the world. Uh, because the other big geo you know, there are several big themes there, including, we'll get to them, sure, energy transition. Mm-hmm. But the other big theme is this dramatic change in the relationship between the United States and China. Yeah. What I call the, you know, the WTO consensus, World Trade Organization, that we're all in it together. We're all going to benefit from a globalized society. And about 2015, it started to change into this era of great power competition, strategic rivalry. And that's the... Um, other issue that you know that you can see coming 
just like you can see this coming down the road, you can see that coming down the road as well. Right, right. We seem to have gone from what was America first in the Trump administration to American manufacturing first in the Biden administration. That's right. And it's, in a way, it's a continuation of this, yes. of, this yes. of this trend, of this polarization. Uh, at What's so ironic about it is, of course, the United States and China are so economically interdependent, yes. even at the same time as this polarization, this division is continuing uh, uh, to grow. And so, you know, I think about it, I, in the in the paperback, I've added a chapter called The Four Ghosts Who uh, mm-hmm. Haunt the South China Sea. I, I tend to, I see it, it has qualities that reminds one, if you're looking for historical analogies, as imperfect as they are, of the pre-First World War situation. Mm-hmm. Now, a, another way in which the U.S. and China were cooperating greatly was back during the Obama years, and that was on climate change policy and that's fallen by the wayside uh, not because I don't think there's tremendous disagreement but rather it's collateral damage on all these other issues between China and the US now but that all relates then to the fact that global climate change is linked obviously with energy generation and use and global climate change policies are linked with the so-called energy transition. How, how is that feeding into the geopolitics of energy? Well, I think it's, it's still profoundly important. I mean, you know, virtually all the nations in the world have signed on to the, uh, Paris, uh, uh, the Paris Climate Accord. And there's no question that you see wind growing, solar growing, uh, call that the energy transition. But it's interesting, even when the Biden administration says, why should the U.S. step up electric cars? You read the documents, it says because China has half the world's electric cars. It's, right. it's you know, so all of this, that competition is is certainly, as you're suggesting, Rob, is uh uh, is flowing into the into the climate discussion. So what's your assessment of the current U.S. administration's energy policy, whether it's domestic energy policy or it's in terms of international relations? Well, I think that uh, it's, it's quite different from where it came in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it is, as I think the energy secretary said, it's having to walk and chew gum at the same time. That is, uh, it's absolutely committed to its climate objectives, and it's moving in that direction in, in many ways. At the same time, it has to recognize the reality of where we are today, and, uh, and that's uh, expensive gasoline, uh, basically what's turning into an energy war with Russia, mm-hmm. shortages around the world, uh, and concern that it's going to derail the economy. So you had, um, we have our... We still called our Sierra Week conference in Houston in March, and the Secretary of Energy, uh, Jennifer Granholm, while continuing to emphasize green jobs and, 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 and climate, also implored the energy industry to increase production, mm-hmm. uh, uh, oil and gas production, uh, because you know they're looking at where gas prices are, and we have ca- kind of uh, moved, moved into a, a period of uh, basically of, of shortage. I mean, I think that the right now, at this point, we're in a pretty dire short-term 
energy situation. In fact, I would say that since last October, we've been in a global energy crisis. So, uh, you know, so it does mean still continuing the administration, its focus on its climate objectives, but at the same time, uh, it can't allow um, or to try and prevent energy problems from derailing the our economy or indeed the global economy. And right now, uh, that's, you know, that's what's happening. So the global energy crisis did not begin with the invasion by the Russians of Ukraine, but last fall. Yeah, what happened, I think if you look back on it, basically during the pandemic and the lockdowns, there was the assumption that, you know, we've reached the peak of conventional energy consumption and it's going down. And then we came out of the lockdown and lo and behold, demand really started to increase again. And simply supplies became very tight, uh, very tight indeed. And so not in the United States, but in Europe and Asia, you were looking at natural gas prices and coal prices that went very high. I, I don't think as much attention was paid into the United States until around November when gasoline prices mm -hmm. started to go up. And that's when the you know administration you know, asked the Saudis to increase oil production and then started to talk to the domestic industry and say, can you increase production as well? So it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a two-track process. And, and how do you see it going forward? I know you, you don't have a pers perfect crystal ball, although having gone back and taken a look at your th three books, indeed four books, I went back to Energy Future right. as well <laughs> to prepare for this. Um, I think you probably do have quite a crystal ball. So w where do you see all this going? Well, you know, first, of course, um, one of the things you learn when you're in the, you know, forecasting is always be prepared to be wrong. Mm -hmm. And I truly hope that I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. But it seems to me that we're that the, cri the situation is going to get worse over the next uh, several months. Uh, that um, because it's not only the question of markets now and uh, investment, but it's also this, you know, this this clash with Russia. And uh, Putin is doing what Russia hasn't and the Soviet Union did not do for half a century. He is manipulating uh, energy supplies to make the situation in Europe more difficult by cutting back on gas. And his strategy is pretty clear, which is to uh, create shortages in Europe, which will cause fissures uh, in the Western unity on uh, Ukraine so that the kind of alliance falls apart. And, uh, you know, to get into the politics, you know, President Macron was reelected in France and the sort of kind of pro-Putin uh, populist party uh, only got 41% of the vote, but that's 41%. That's a lot. And uh, so, I mean, Putin has made clear that he thinks that the alliance is going to crack because of uh, energy prices and by cutting back on gas supplies, uh, he's trying to prevent the Europeans from getting enough natural gas in storage for this winter so that eventually, you know, you'll have a, a political reaction and people will say, I'm more concerned about energy prices than I am about Ukraine or Russia mm -hmm. and governments will change. So I think, um, uh, you know, so I think, and that's on top of the kind of shortages uh, that we're seeing and everything is in short supply. Uh, uh, oil is in short supply. Uh, natural gas is in short supply globally and coal is in short supply and mm -hmm. you can't build enough wind turbines and solar quickly 
to uh, accommodate uh, for that. So, uh, and, you know, politicians react to voters and voters react to their pocketbooks when these prices get as high as they are. And, uh, you know, we'll see how it goes over the summer. But if you start to have disruptions of uh, energy supplies or rationing, in effect, Europe is moving towards starting to ration natural gas supplies. Mm-hmm. It started up coal plants that it was going to shut down. Right. So, uh, uh, it, and now this is also taking in the context of what most economists now expect to be an economic downturn or recession. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And of course, recessions are the one thing that can modify uh, energy prices uh, in due course. So that that raises the question of the the net effect of what's happening in Ukraine and Russia and Europe uh, with natural gas in terms of climate change and carbon dioxide emissions. Because as you said, on the one hand, that that has had the effect of, for example, Germany just announcing about restarting some coal-fired power plants for electricity generation. Um, Greece had months, uh, at least a month ago, had indicated that. But on the other hand, perhaps the optimists, the climate optimists, would say that uh, these pressures will, with regards to natural gas, a fossil fuel, will push countries to move more quickly to renewables. So there there might be some trade-offs. What do you think the net effect is going to be? I think the answer is both. They're doing mm-hmm. both. The Germans mm-hmm. are saying we're going to build LNG receiving terminals. Yes. Uh, and indeed, they now look on U.S. LNG exports as part of their energy security. And they're depending upon it, uh, that, that how important U.S. gas is to them. Uh, so they're absolutely looking for uh, more conventional energy. And it's you, you know, you describe what Germany's done, and please note that it's not—it's not the conservative CDU party that did this. It's the Greens, the yes. environmentalists, who said we need to turn on our coal plants because we know what Putin is trying to do, and we can't allow that to happen. Right. But, no, the energy minister is from the Green Party. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But uh, and he's—he's he's the one who's really at the forefront of this and has been, uh, you know, working with the energy industry, saying, okay, how do we get off Russian oil? Uh, you know, tell me how the flows actually work so we can do this. So there's a very close collaboration because they realize mm-hmm. they have a big problem to solve. But on the other hand, Europe has come out with a, even a stronger commitment to renewables. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that, you know, the, the, the longer term outcome of this is an acceleration of, uh, of renewables, uh, renewable electricity uh, as the as a longer term alternative. So that's why it's, you know, you've got to deal both with the short term crisis right. and at the same time lay the basis for a different kind of future. And, and indeed, if that's the pattern, then that's probably a wise pattern. Short term cutting back on focus on climate change because of the immediacy of the energy crisis and the politics, the geopolitics, but in the long term accelerating the move to renewables. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, and I think that will happen. Now, it does raise one other question about renewables, and it's something that in in the new in the new map, you know, I have this whole mm-hmm. section trying to look historically at energy transitions, what lessons are there are, and to realize that this is an energy transition like none that's ever happened before, and that there is the supposition 
you know, the, the wind is free, the sun is free, but you need a lot of materials uh, right. uh, to, to make this transition. And so uh, I have the line in the book where I say, you know, we're going to move from an era from big oil, that phrase we always hear, to big shovels because you're going to need so much mm-hmm. mining. And mm-hmm. I've been uh, doing following up on just looking at it in terms of copper. And, you know, there are two countries in the world that produce 38% of the world's copper, which is Chile and Peru. Mm-hmm. So, and then you look at the supply chains for, uh, for kind of call it the materials for net zero carbon, and they tend to run through China. So this mm-hmm. is where, what we were talking about before, Rob, this geopolitics yeah. over here, this rising tension between the U.S. and China kind of collides with uh, this move with energy transition in a way, if you sort of say, what else do I see coming down the road? I guess I would say that's something else I see that it's going to be a little more complicated than it might appear right now. So let me close um, this wonderful discussion, wonderful, at least from my perspective, um, to get your reactions to something we've seen starting in 2019, which were these youth movements of climate activism. Um, I mean, most prominently Greta Thunberg, but it certainly goes beyond that. I can tell you at Harvard, among the students, we see it tremendously. It started really in 2019, a bit of a hiatus in 2020 because of the pandemic, and then back again in force at the climate negotiations in Glasgow, Scotland in uh, late fall 2021. I'm interested to know, what's your reaction to these youth movements? Well, first, of course, Rob, you see it up front from many dimensions. Uh, uh, I almost want to ask you what you think. (laughs) (laughs) I think I will, but first I'll try and answer, but then I'm going to ask you what you think. I think it's, I think there's clearly, this is a generational issue. It's one that is, uh, you know, it's a global theme that runs through Mm -hmm. and it's very motivating uh, for the people. And it's, um, you know, it's a social movement. I guess I'd call it. It's not mm-hmm. only. I, I got to. I'm sorry. I have to ask you, Rob. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> I don't want to take the last word, but I'll, I'll tell you. That I, I, I would. I would give you my thinking in the form of a bit of a question, and that is whether this is a cohort effect or an age effect. As people get older, it is true that they become more conservative. Or is this is, is it not about age? Is it really about this cohort? And that ten years from now, instead of demonstrating outside the gates at the annual climate negotiations, they'll be inside the room doing the negotiations. I think it's probably a bit of both, and my hope is that the cohort part remains. And and I think the reason I say this, Dan, I think you'll resonate with this, is that back in an earlier era when i was younger the big issue was the war in vietnam at least for americans and i remember talking with older people who were much more conservative about it and i couldn't understand their conservatism and so when i look at young people today whenever i have the temptation to be conservative and say and thinking that demonstrating doesn't have any effect you've got to just you know study more learn more and then get a job where you can have an effect i also am reminded of the fact that as you just said you know that that the passion that's associated with what is really a movement is itself 
very important and I think to be admired. Right. Well, I think to use your language, I think it's it's a cohort of effect, which is I think, in other words, this is mm-hmm. now this is part of their worldview. Yes. A fundamental element in their worldview, and they've grown up with it, and uh, uh, they don't have patience. Uh, the notion, you know, energy crises, that's something else. So I think, uh, yeah. you know, I think it's of lasting political and social significance. Well, that's a really good place for us to end, which is actually, I think, an optimistic note. So thank you very much, Dan, for taking time to join us today. Well, thank you, Rob. This is a great discussion. And I have to tell you, I'm very glad to be back at the Kennedy School. So thank you for the invitation. Oh, you bet. Our guest today has been Daniel Jurgen, historian, educator, energy analyst, and author. Please join us again for the next episode of Environmental Insights, Conversations on Policy and Practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.heap.hks.harvard.edu.